Thank you so much for checking out the Connect Church podcast. We hope you're encouraged and inspired by this week's sermon. So let's jump right in and check out this week's message. We're in the last two weeks. Next week is it in our series, We Are Connect Church. And it's the idea that we, we answer the why behind what we do in order to excite and to encourage one another to ask, how can I be involved in what God is doing in the life of his church? Here's some of the, the questions we've asked and answered through the word of God. Why church? Why serve? Why sing? Why this book? Why spend time in this book and with the Lord every day? And today we continue to look at what we have looked at now for the fourth week in a row. The, the very thing that every message at Connect Church V-lines to, every song that is sung V-lines to, every service and act of love V-lines to, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we've asked, and we've looked to his word for the answer of what is the gospel, and why is it central? Why is it celebrated in the life of Connect Church? Here's a great definition. The gospel is the good news that the, the very God who created you loves you and sent his son Jesus to die on a cross for your sins. And that very same Jesus rose again three days later so that in him you may have life and life everlasting. Isn't that good news today? But you know, I think really strikingly, the gospel is missing in the mouths of so many believers today. It's non-existent. And conversations that find themselves in the context of outside of these walls and outside in the marketplace of our everyday lives, it's missing. And I wonder why. Last week we talked about this. We, we asked why the nations, why is the churches, it's so important that we, we go to the nations with the gospels. Why take the gospel outside of the church walls, outside the walls of our community, outside the walls of our culture, and bring it to a place where people need Jesus. And here's what, we, here's what we summed up last week. Because God's heart's for all people, not just some. God's heart's for all people, even if they don't look like you and talk like you and me and, and act like you and me. God's heart's for all people, not just some. And here's what we better yet drew, drew our passion from, and that is this, that Christ's command isn't just local, but it's global. People need the gospel. And last week we gave a great apologetic for that. But the question, where is the gospel? In the midst of our own community, in our own culture. Have you ever noticed how offended our culture is about everything? Isn't it just hard to walk across the street without offending somebody? I, I, I was thinking through this and, and I, I just, I went to the news for like three minutes and here's what I found that was alarming. That there are, in a culture where everybody's offended, there are whole generations of people that are entitled snowflakes. I don't even really know what that means. I, I find in this offense culture that safe spaces adorn our college campuses, political correctness and wokeness are interwoven into every conversation and word choice in our culture. And, and, and I just looked at the news for three minutes to come up with that. And I begin to think about a culture that is so offended. And I thought this morning that I could have a little fun with that. Because when I looked at it, I wasn't really offended by much. But now that I think of it, I'm pretty offended at a lot of things. And I want to share those with you this morning. First of all, 
We've got Ben Whitehead here. I love him and his precious wife. We go, can you stand up, Pastor Ben? He pastors a church called the Pub Church. And yes, it's exactly what you think. It's really cool. Um, we go way back. But you know what offends me about this guy? Look at his beard game. I, he's got a braid in here. And I want a beard like that. And here he comes walking in this church with a better beard game than me. I'm sorry, I just wanted to share my offense. But it's so good to have you this morning. And I'm offended. So what I did, church, is I created a box. A box is simply titled, I'm offended. Aren't you offended? <laughs> anyway, I, and I just put some items in here that really offended me. Um, first of which is this. Lettuce. Hey, who's the joker that mowed his lawn, put it in a bag, all the clippings, and decided to sell it and tell the doctor that it's good for me, right? Like, I'm offended by it. It doesn't taste good. Its texture is terrible. And the doctor says, I have to eat it. Can I tell you the only saving grace of lettuce? Bacon, cheese, and a boatload of ranch, right? So that it takes away the texture and the taste of lettuce. I can't say I'm offended by lettuce. Something else I'm offended by. Yeah, I got a little boy. I got a six-year-old girl, four-year-old girl, two-year-old girl, and, and I got a little boy in the mix. And uh, as we knew we had a little boy, my grandparents, my, my in-laws, my mother-in-law. Are you in here, Dana? There she is. No eye contact here, okay? Um, with my little boy, um, they started giving presents. And we're praying for Eric and Dana that one day they'll come to truth and trust in Christ. And um, this was one of the presents they gave him. You know what this is in Revelation, the mark of the beast. <laughs> anyway, can I tell you something else I'm offended by? <laughs> Y'all ought to go home and make your own box. This is great. I called my brother. He's the pastor at Oak City. And uh, he's a, he, your neighbor. Um, he's, <laughs> I'm the feast, he's the famine, okay? Um, we're size-wise differently, and manly-wise differently. And I said, man, hey, I need to borrow something from you that really offends me. He said, okay. So I have a pair of his skinny jeans. <laughs> what in God's name? Every time I see him, he said, I'm like, buddy, what is wrong? And we were at our family group. Amanda said, well, hey, because he came and taught our family. She said, well, hey, Anthony, why don't you dress like that? I was like, it is for your good that I don't try to pile all this into this. It's for your health and safety and well-being. I'm just offended by skinny jeans. I mean, you may be wearing them now, but I'm just, I don't like them. Um, <laughs> um, my, my, my wife's family, um, just weird. I love them. Just a little different. Zach included, worship leader. I'm offended by unsweet tea. It's just dirty dishwater. But they drink it. And I'm going to tell you, the, the fact, have you ever ordered a sweet tea? And God forbid this will ever happen. But they put unsweet tea in there and you take the first sip and you pray for the sweet release of death. I, I'm offended by unsweet Let me tell you how I learned how to drink this. You ready? You take the cap off and you pour it out in the sink. And watch it. I'm just offended by unsweet tea. Just here's the last but not least. <laughs> Some of y'all will be offended that I'm offended by this. 
So you catch yourself here, okay? Danny, you good right here there on the camera? You ready? Hallmark Christmas movies. How many men in here say, you know what? Loud and proud. I love Hallmark Christmas movies. Keep your hands up, please. I'm going to need your man cards before you leave as you exit this door. That's right. Security, I'll make sure of that, okay? Man, every Christmas time, my father-in-law sends out the list of Hallmark movies that are going to be showing. And now it's like the 630 days of Christmas leading up to Hallmark. And my wife's like, let's watch a Hallmark movie. And I'm like, I already know how it's going to end. I already know where the magical snowflakes are going to appear in them. She's like, it's brand new. It don't matter. I, I know how. I'm offended by Hallmark movies. And you know, honestly, this is a lot of fun, but we really do live in a culture that has been offended by everything, anything and everything that we can be offended by. I came across some new research by the Barna Research Group. I had a great graph, but our TV wasn't working this morning, so I'll explain it to you, what this research begins to tell us about the gospel and this idea of offense. Now, first of all, to do that, I need some help. I need to know what generation you're from, okay? It's gonna help us understand a lot about this survey. Now, when I start describing these generations, first of all, ladies, you do not have to raise your hand for any generation. Why? Because I love life. Men, don't you lie and put yourself in a generation 20 years younger than you are. We all know you're old, right? And so don't do that. Watch this. Who's in my boomers generation? That's those of you who were born between 1946 and 1964. Awesome. Wow. Awesome. That's our boomer generation. All right, how about our Gen Xers? You guys were born between 1965 and 1980. Awesome. We're doing pretty good here. Good little mix. All right, now we have our millennial generation. Thank God I made it. Um, but these are those of us who were born between 1981 and 1996, loud and proud, where's millennials? Awesome, awesome. And then, of course, we have post-millennial. That means you're even younger than that. You were born around 1997, between then and somewhere today. Is there anybody in the service? Hey, I see you. Look at all our precious young people. Look at that. That's awesome. So you know your generation, right? Here's what Barna began to teach us. And I, and I want to pick on my generation just for a moment because it's, it's my generation. It's the millennials, in, in conversation about the gospel and the offense of the gospel and really sharing your faith, here's what this research taught us about my generation. That three in five Christian millennials think people are more likely today than in the past to take offense if we share the gospel. You know what that says? That 65% of us believe that in a sense sharing the gospel is offensive. Now, now for all you other generations like, that's right, skinny jean wearing millennials, that's exactly what... We came from you, and our numbers are not far off from yours. That right now we live in a culture where the very gospel itself is offensive to people. Nearly half of all of my generation would say this coming out of this Barna research, that for you and I to share the gospel with someone who doesn't believe like we do is wrong, and it shouldn't be done. Nearly half of us think that. The gospel is a great offense. But isn't that uniquely the only arena 
that we, we employ such logic? Think of this. If I were to go to the doctor's office tomorrow morning, which I don't like the doctor, I don't go unless I'm dying. And half the time I'm convinced I'm dying. Anyway, I just don't go to the doctor. But if I were to go to the doctor in the morning, you know what he's going to do? Slap a cuff on my, my arm and say, I'm going to take your blood pressure. You know what his nurse is going to do? She's going to look at me like I'm dying. My blood pressure's a little too high. And then she's going to tell me to do something I hate to do at a doctor's office. Step on the scale. Can I just lie about how much I weigh? Like, what does it really matter? Just give me the elephant dosage of everything, right? No, but you got to step on the scale. And so there's going to be a number there. Uh, I kid folks that when I step on the scale, sometimes it says, just go to the emergency room right now, all right? Uh, but there's a number there. And honestly, my doctor's going to walk in the room if I go tomorrow. He says, hey, it's good to see you. Da, da, da. And you listen, you don't have to lose some weight. How dare you judge me? How dare you cast judgment upon my weight? It is my weight. I'm happy with my weight. And we don't do that with the doctor. Why? Because we go to a good doctor that would even look at something like a weight problem and go, you know what? Because I'm a good doctor and I care for you, I'm going to tell you the truth even when it hurts. Can I tell you something about the gospel? I had a good believer loves and cares for people and shares the gospel because it's the truth unlike the doctor that would lead to just physical health. It is a truth that leads to health everlasting. We don't apply that logic when we go to the doctor. And so here's what I begin to derive is I begin to think about the offense of the gospel. I, I begin to think about this call and we ask this question this morning. We, we go from why the nations to why my neighbor? Well, why do the nations need the gospel? But, but why does my, my neighbor need the gospel? And without question, some of you are going, well, who's my neighbor? Some of you are like, I built a house in the woods with no neighbors on purpose, so I'm out of this whole gospel conversation, right? Well, not so. I'm reminded of Luke chapter 10. Remember Luke chapter 10? An expert of the law comes up to Jesus and says, hey, listen, what's the greatest commandment? And as it was in Matthew and, and Jesus, and Luke explains this tale in Luke, Jesus said, well, hey, he goes back to the Old Testament Shema. You're to love your God, Lord your God, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And he would teach him in the seconds like it, right? To do what? To love your neighbor. To love your neighbor. Well, in Luke's account, Luke chapter 10, the expert of the law goes, well, then who's my neighbor? Trying to catch Jesus. You know what Jesus does? He answers his question with a story. He says there was a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho on a road. Robbers came up at him. They beat him, stripped him of his clothes, and left him to die half dead in a ditch. And he goes on and says, a priest, the man in charge of temple worship, walked by him. And the Bible says that he walked around him and left him there to die. And then another man came, a Levite, whose tribe was entrusted with the very worship of God and, and the purity of worship of God, a Levite came and walked by, saw the man in the ditch, and went around the other way, away from him. And then Jesus says, and then there was the Samaritan. And I can imagine the teacher of the law he's talking with going, oh, 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 no, you didn't. You didn't just drop a Samaritan in the story. You see, Samaritans were who, were who racially were hated, who were subjugated, people who were not even fit for the kingdom of God. In, in fact, they believed that they were a type of half-breed in that day, terrible racism. 
terrible hatred, terrible animosity. And now Jesus is bringing the Samaritan in as the hero of the story. No, you did. Oh, Jesus did. And here comes the Samaritan. Finds the man. The Bible says in verse 33 that he had compassion on him. The Bible says that Samaritan picked him up. He carefully bandaged all of his wounds. In a sense, put him up at the hotel. Went down to the desk and said, here's, here's my card. This is for his stay and any charges he might occur out of the mini fridge. I'll take care of it. He loved him. And Jesus asked the teacher of the law who had asked, who's my neighbor? Said, hey, hey, by the way, who was the neighbor to that man? And he said it was the one who had compassion, who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, you know what? You go and do likewise. So, so who's our neighbor in this conversation today? You ready? Your neighbor is anyone who's been stripped by sin and selfishness of this world and left dead spiritually who is in need of the hope and the light of the gospel. It's anybody you come in contact with that you have influence with that just by happenstance your past cross. Your neighbor is anybody who's right in front of you. That's your neighbor. And why does my neighbor need the gospel. Well, I think as a church, we've got we've to define where we stand. In a culture of great offense, where everybody's so offended by everything, where do we stand as a church when it pertains to the gospel? Well, we stand as Paul does. Take your Bibles and go to Romans chapter one, if you would. Romans chapter one, New Testament, get on the other end of the gospels. Romans chapter one, and some of y'all like, if you usually have a TV up there, has the scripture on there, what you doing today? The devil got into that TV. You know, I about chunked it on the floor today. I was back there breaking out in the sweat, figuring out what was going on. I just, I pushed it meanly behind. I was offended by the TV today. Just to confess that with you. If you, where do we stand as a church? In a culture of great offense of the gospel, which may be an offense to our culture. Here's where we stand, as Paul does. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then to the Gentiles. By the way, that's Paul's way of summing up that the gospel is open for everybody, not just somebody. The gospel is open for everybody. So where do we stand? We stand unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love the word gospel here. This is the, the fourth of fifth times that Paul uses this word in just a few verses in his opening statement in his letter to the churches in Rome. Just It's the fourth of fifth time. He absolutely dots the landscape of this letter with the gospel. And I love that. You know, a lot of theologians would agree that Romans chapter one, verse 16, really is the theme of the entire letter or the entire book of Romans. And what, what's the theme? The gospel and the very power of God to change the hearts and the minds of many men. That's the theme of the book of Romans found here in Romans chapter one, verse 16. <clears throat> Excuse me, as, as we look at this and as I watch Paul's writing here, you know what I see? I don't see a man who's just writing down and rattling off information. I find a man that when he speaks and he writes of the gospel, that he does so because he's been transformed by the very power of God he writes about. 
hey, by the way, your conversation about the gospel is fueled by how much the gospel means to you and the difference that it made in your life. I'm reminded of Paul's letter to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in his opening statements to the church at Corinth. Listen to what he said in verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness. Now look at the word foolishness there. That word also derives from an, an offense is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the very power of God. On in verse 22, he would say this, Jews demand a sign and the Greeks look for wisdom. But in verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified. And notice these words, a stumbling block for the Jews and foolishness for the Greeks. The word stumbling block for the Jews and foolishness for the Greeks. Do you know what they mean? That they are an offense. They are a threat to the very ones whose names accompany those words. But I love this. Verse 24. But though, for those who God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, who's also the very wisdom of God. You know, that word power shows up, doesn't it, a lot. Power, power. I love that word in the Greek. I've shared this with you. It's dunamis. It's where we get our word dynamite from. But don't be fooled into thinking that God's power is equal to the power of dynamite. Not one stick of dynamite. Not all the sticks of dynamite. The very power talked about here is the spiritual power of God intervening and interacting with humanity to bring forth our salvation, to bring us from a place of, of hopelessness to great hope, a place of darkness to great light a place of death to a place of life. That is what the power of God does. And here's the question I ask of the gospel. With all there is to be offended about, surely the gospel has no offense at all. Or does it? Does the gospel carry with it an offense really? And my answer to you today is, yes, it does. The gospel is an offense. And let me, let me illustrate to you this way. The gospel is an offense against the very sin at work that seeks to destroy each of us. The gospel is an offense to the selfishness that wants to consume us. The gospel is an offense to the notion that we are the God of our lives. The gospel is an offense to the thought that we can save ourselves. The gospel is an offense to those who want no higher morality than their own and no greater pursuit than their own happiness. It is an offense to the concept that sin must be punished. It is an offense to the disobedient heart because the gospel calls us to bring our hearts into obedience unto Christ. The gospel has an offense. I love what one pastor said. He said, if you were to take all the offense out of the gospel, you are left with no gospel at all. You're left with no gospel. Hey, why is the gospel, why does it have an offense? Because the, the gospel's our only defense before God. Why is there great offense in the gospel? Because it is our only defense before God. There is no other defense before God. Not our own goodness. Not our own good works. Not our own good opinions. There is no defense before God other than the gospel. And yes, listen, the gospel is an offense 
to our sin. Yes, the gospel is an offense to our self-sufficiency. Yes, the gospel is an offense to the notion that you and I, in our own goodness, can save ourselves. But Anthony, why such an offense? Because only such offense can save us. Think of it. In a sense, the offense of the gospel is an act of great love for us by God. Hey, can I share with you the truth this morning, church? I am so glad that at the age of 15 that I was offended by the gospel, that my sin was offended by the gospel, that my self-sufficiency was offended, that my notion that I was good enough to save myself was offended by the gospel because that's when Jesus saved me. Have you ever been offended by the gospel? Have you ever been there? I jotted this down. The offense of the gospel opens up the opportunity for God to overwhelm our hearts and our lives with his grace. It's an opportunity for God when there's such great offense. You know, here's what I want to camp out on. This thought right here. That the greatest offense to our neighbor, hear me church, is not the gospel. The greatest offense to our neighbor is that of the believer who doesn't love for or care enough for their neighbor enough to share the gospel with them. Who's my neighbor? The person right in front of you. The man in the ditch on the side of the road. The woman who's so hurt and broken. She needs his healing. Who's my neighbor? It's the attic. It's the imprisoned. Who's my neighbor? It's whoever God has given you a presence and an influence with right in front of you. With all the cultural offense that there is to be had, I have found overwhelmingly so that individuals are open and appreciative to those who share the gospel and their faith with them by and large. Be passionate. My voice is going. All the sinus issue. I preached my guts out last night at a revival and I feel like my voice is going. So you, you may see what it sounded like when I was going through puberty here in a little bit, okay? Uh, so be patient with me. Here's one of the things that I noted. That though our culture is so offended by the gospel, individuals are open to the gospel. That surround us. That's nine out of ten times, maybe even a greater percentage to that. And here's what I wanted you to know. is I wanted this, that you and I ought to be more fearful of the reality of our neighbor's life and eternity without Christ, more fearful of that than we are the chance at which they might be offended by the gospel. We ought to be fearful what a life is like without Jesus and their eternity without Jesus and the chance that it might offend them. I love Luke chapter 10, verse 27. We camped out there, the Good Samaritan. Jesus was asked, what is it to love God? He says, to love God with everything, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength and all of your mind. And to love your neighbor. Here's the word I love in verse 33, and we already capitalized on this. It says this, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. Notice that. He approached the man. He didn't necessarily wait for the half-dead man to crawl up out of a ditch. He went to where the man was. He went into the pub. He went in 
into the marketplace of that light. He went into where that man was. And it says this, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Now, careful with that word. It's not, oh, that's sad. Here's my Starbucks order. Oh, man, could you? Okay. And we come on with life as most of the time that we do. The very word compassion in the Greek speaks to being impacted in the deepness of our bowels. You know what it means? That, that what he felt for him that day was such a sense of compassion that it hurt in the deepest part of who he was for him. It was a compassion that led to action. And he ministered healing to this man who was so broken. It's more than just feeling sorry for someone. What does it mean to love our neighbor and to take the gospel to our neighbor? You ready? It means going where they are, having compassion, not feeling sorry for them, but going, you know what, as much as I love you, I desire more than anything else for you to know that very same Jesus has changed my life. But church, that's missing in a lot of churches and a lot of lives of believers. I ran across this. Charles Pace was a notorious criminal. And back in 1879, he was sentenced to be executed for his crimes. On February 25th, in fact, a minister was there to speak with him and to administer his last rites before they were to execute him. And listen to what the minister said. Talk about compassion. Those who die without Christ experience hell which is the pain of forever dying without the release of death itself. <laughs> Godspeed. Lord bless you. You know what that minister did that day? He weaponized truth in order to destroy somebody. And what he should have done that day was offer the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ that could have saved Charles Pace from such a reality. As the minister was speaking, the man to be executed looked up at the minister and here were his words. Sir, if I believed what you and the church of God say that you believe, even if England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would walk over it if need be on hands and on knees and think it worthwhile living just to save one soul from an eternal hell like that. And you know what amazes me about that true story? is that a dying man apart from Christ showed more compassion for people than a minister who stood there on behalf of Christ. You know, today my challenge is not for you to get on hands and knees, crawl over broken glass all across Sevier County in this nation and this world. My challenge this morning for you and I when we ask why does our neighbor need the gospel is to get off our hind ends Walk to the ditch. Maybe that's the house next door. Maybe that's the lunchroom table. At school. Maybe it's through one of our, our ministry partners that we have in our community, in the prisons, in the hospitals, in our, in our friendships, in our, in our own homes. Have compassion on people in a way that says, I want you to know and to follow after 
Jesus. So Andy, how do we do it? Well, number one, you, you pray for your neighbor. Okay, church answer. Tired of church answers. You wouldn't be so tired if you actually knew the power there. Pray for your neighbor. People may deny the gospel. They may reject Jesus. They may oppose our faith, but they are powerless against our prayers. I love what John chapter six, verse 44 says, that no one can come to me unless the father who has sent me draws them. So you know what we ask God to do? We ask God to intervene on behalf of people that they would know him. I love this phrase, and you may want to jot this down, where prayer is focused, power falls. All throughout human history, all throughout biblical history, where prayer of God's people is focused, the very power of God falls. And I'm going to tell you, when you focus your prayers in on those in your own family, in your own community, in your school, in your workplaces who don't know Jesus, the very power of God is at work in them. And we got to pray for our neighbor. Number two, you and I, I love this. You got to play with your neighbor. You got to play with your neighbor. What do, I, what do I mean by that? How to build a relationship with them. When you play a card game with somebody, when you play on the ball field with somebody, when you just do life together with somebody, you build a relationship that says, you know what? You're just not a number. You're just not a body count. You're not just some goal but you are someone who was created in the image of God, dearly loved by God. And you know what? I love you a whole lot too. Build relationships. Listen, tomorrow, uh, next Sunday, if I were to promote that Nayland Stadium was to be opened up for the church and we would have an incredible service in which we're gonna share the gospel, I'm gonna guess that I wouldn't get half of this crowd to show up. The, the days of filling up stadiums are few and far between, if ever again for people to hear the gospel. But the days that are ahead in evangelism is you cooking some burgers on the grill, inviting your neighbor over, building a relationship with them. It's, it's reaching out to someone you know is going through a hard time and just loving them. Those are the days that are forward. So play with your neighbor. Build a relationship with them. Hey, can I, can I make this, this one note? Um, and our last thing I want to share with you, and that is to, to personally share the gospel with your neighbor. Uh, so I'm Catholic by birth, right, Mama? They wrote, raised us up in the Catholic church and made us to be altar boys, thanks. And, um, and, and I'll never forget hearing St. Francis, because we were really big on the saints, right? Um, St. Francis of Assisi, right? First of all, I would change where I was from. Anyway, so St. Francis came out with this statement that's, that's attributed to him. Preach the gospel, and when necessary, use your words. I love that statement. But it's only half true. Hear me, church. It is always necessary at some point to use your words. I've never had anybody come up to me at Walmart. They look at me across the aisle and go, I want to come to Jesus because I saw the way you got your groceries. It's never... If it does happen, I'll share it with you. I, I'm going to go to Walmart today just to see if my Never happened. It is always necessary to use your words. And can I, can I mention this in the whole conversation of the offense of the gospel? The gospel has an offense enough for you not to be offensive, for you and I not to add offense to the gospel.
Sometimes our, our approach to evangelism is, let me lead you to prayer, prayer into hell with you after that if you don't say yes. Gosh, I'm telling you. The gospel has offense enough that you and I don't need to add offense to the very gospel. I love what John Piper says. Um, he talked about us being exiles, meaning this world is not our home. Our home is in heaven. Ain't that true, church? Our home's not here, praise God. Listen to what he says. He says, being exiles does not mean being cynical. It does not mean being indifferent or uninvolved. The salt of the earth does not mock rotting meat. Where it can, it saves and seasons, and where it can, it weeps. And the light of the world does not withdraw, saying good riddance to godless darkness. It labors to illuminate. It labors to illuminate. Last night, I was asked to preach a revival service. <clears throat> and there was, there was 30 people there. Two of them indicated that they gave their heart and their life to Jesus, to love. And I preached a lot of this very same message to them last night. The entire church got up, all 30 of them. And many of them were actually, predominantly they were in the older generation. And I watched them come last night and get down on their knees and beg and plead of God to save their community and their families. And it was unbelievable. Why? Because the gospel has its own offense. They don't have to be offensive but they looked at a lost and dying world and they worked to, to save and season it through the power of God and, and where they couldn't, I watched them last night weep for people who don't know Jesus. Hey, when was the last time you wept for somebody who doesn't know the Lord? When was the last time your heart was bothered enough to go across the street into the ditch with somebody and love them and share the gospel with them? When was the last time, church? Anthony, this message offends me. Well, good. It ought to. When the word of God is preached, it ought to rub some part of our lives that is yet to be fully surrendered to Jesus. So if you're offended this morning, two steps. Get over it and get to work the work of the gospel. I want to close in this way. When you share the gospel with people, I want, to, I want to alleviate you of one thing. Don't share the gospel carrying the weight of the world and the weight of their decision. Saving someone is, is up to God. Sharing with someone is up to you and me. Sharing with someone's up to us. I'm just... A nobody trying to tell everybody about a somebody who can save anybody. Why our neighbor? Because they need the gospel. Thank you again for checking out our podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date on our services. If you'd like to give to support our ministry, you can do that at our website. That's connectchurchpf.com. Hope you enjoyed and have a great week.